Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. It's another soundtrack in live this week, this time recorded a month or so back at festival number six in the weird and wonderful village of Port Merion in North Wales. My guest that day was a novelist, playwright and occasional director of shorts who well and truly thrust himself into the pop cultural consciousness with Train Spotting and Danny Boyle's subsequent film adaptation of the same name. I am, of course, talking about Irvin Welsh. Irvin was in fine form discussing everything from his unlikely love of musicals and rom-coms to the directors and composers who've inspired him as both a writer and a great fan of cinema. It all seemed to go down very well with a packed audience thanks to those who attended, which made a very long round trip more than worthwhile. Indeed, we love getting out and about on soundtracking, as do the team at No Such Thing As A Fish. And if you've ever listened to the hit podcast from the researchers behind the BBC show QI, you'll also know that nobody's better at sniffing out implausible yet hilarious facts than they. And now they've written a book, it's called The Book of the Year 2018 and is full of odd, funny, yet completely true stories from the year. For instance, turns out Elon Musk released a product that throws flames up to 10 feet and called it Not a Flamethrower. Fact. Elsewhere, priests stopped praying for people in case they breached new data protection laws by doing so. It really is great fun, even if you haven't come across either QI or the podcast. And if that is the case, well, you need to rectify that situation immediately. The book of the year 2018 by No Such Thing as a Fish is your definitive guide to the world's weirdest news and is out now in audiobook, ebook, and hardback in all good bookshops. And so to Irvin, whose books, it's fair to say, are rather more lurid and sweary, rather like our conversation. You have been warned. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for coming in. We've never done this before at a festival, so this is our first one, so I'm slightly terrified, but really excited about who we're going to be chatting to. Um, I've tried to get some bits that we can play so it's not just a kind of straightforward chat, which is how I record the podcast. We never plan stuff in advance, but I wanted to try and be able to play some music for you today. So what I've done is um, I got in touch with Arvin Aston to pick some of his favourite films and some of the music from those. So we got some of that to play you throughout the conversation. But without further ado, please welcome to our first ever festival recording of soundtrack and the fabulous Mr. Hold on, I've got his walk on music ready. Irvin Welsh. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that a good choice? It was a fantastic choice. I felt this audience was going to be so sexy that I had to put a dark glasses on to blind myself. <laughs> but I'm ready to face you all now, like, you know, and be overwhelmed by the sheer beauty of you all. That's one of the earliest tracks you remember hearing, is that right? Yeah, um, my mum and dad were big Beatles fans and um, I kind of grew up with the Beatles really and I think as you do when you're that, when you're that age, I kind of um, I rebelled against them. You know, how, how can you rebel against the Beatles basically? <laughs> you're kind of rebelling against life itself in a way. Maybe that explains a lot of things actually. Yeah, and I kind of thought, oh, fuck the Beatles, you know. It's like kind of, uh, and I went to that phase, you know, when I got into punk and all that, I was like, yeah, this is great, fuck all these bands and all that. 
It was only later on that I kind of really started to appreciate the Beatles. I mean, I, I did always as a kid. You, you, you jump around to the early Beatles and all that. Yeah. But um, when, they, when they get to that point, you know, when they, when they start to get that kind of mystical way, they had all these different kind of eras. And it's amazing the thing about the Beatles is this all took place in seven years, basically. Crazy. It's absolutely nuts, yeah. What was the first memory that you have of music within film connecting with you and the music being as important as what you were seeing in the story you were being told? Oliver, when it transferred from stage to screen, yeah. you know, the, it was kind of like Lionel Bart's original score on the, on the stage. And it, um, I remember going to Blackpool uh, as a kid on holiday. I think uh, we were there for 10 days and I saw the film eight times. I just kind of broke ranks from everybody and just said, I'm off to the cinema, just give me a couple of bobs so I can go back to the cinema. And they were happy, you know, just get get, get, get out of the <laughs> fucking road for a couple, for a couple of hours, like. What do you think it was about the story and the music, obviously? It's funny because Dickens is quite a bleak writer. It's a very bleak subject matter about basically a kid kind of going into the care system and, be, and then being on the streets and getting taken up by a, a bunch of criminals and trained as a criminal. But um, the music lifts it into this kind of sort of romantic kind of kitsch, basically. And I think that, you know, it's probably a big influence on me, kind of underscoring my kind of whole view of life and my whole view of kind of street life and social life, that um, no matter how dark things are, there's always an underlying song kind of waiting to burst out. Musicals in general, are you a fan of, or is it just that one? No, I do like musicals, and it's it's a terrible thing to kind of admit. Why? Well, musicals make me cry. I have to watch <laughs> White Christmas every single year. The ritual is that, you know, it's like I put White Christmas on, and uh, the bit at the end where the general comes in and inspects the troops, I mean, I just cry. You know, it's just like a, just sitting there, tears streaming down my eyes, and 
I can watch anything on the screen. I can watch the most excessive violence. I just laugh. You know, I think this is just actors and special effects and prosthetics yeah. being shot off. But when I see somebody expressing genuine kind of emotion, pathos, kind of sadness and love, I just kind of, <laughs> I just turn into a big sap. kind of romantic comedy you can sit there and can watch it and I think it's a different thing where women like going to rom-coms and all that and they go on, you know you go on dates to, to romantic comedies the women always kind of sit there and go <laughs> you know and, and you know and then, and then it's like you know it's like and I was sitting there just welling up just about to kind of you know, fighting back the tears you know I can't, I've, got, I've got to toughen up here I've got to toughen up again you know if it's if it's like people getting blown off Blown off, did I say? Different type of film, different type of film. First Friday and slip of the day. Um, yeah, I mean, um, people losing limbs and all that and suspense stuff. And uh, I, I just sit there and kind of, you know, if you're sitting with your wife or girlfriend or whatever, it's like they're just like kind of... Uh, uh, uh. But the, rom the romantic comedy, they're like, fuck this, piss, this is fucking nonsense. <laughs> Sobbing your eyes out. What was the last film you cried at then? I don't know, uh, I'm trying to think. Have you seen Mamma Mia 2 yet? I've not seen Mamma Mia 2. Oh, no. I'm warning you. I loved Mamma Mia 1 just for Piers Brosnan singing SOS. <laughs> it was the most incredible thing ever. It was such a kind of, you know, an un-SOS type vocal <laughs> there. It was like a JK staggering down the, <laughs> down the hill, like, trying to get him. For those non-Scots, that's a homeless person on the street corner.
You picked some great films when I got in touch with you and asked you to pick some of the favourite films that music's a really big part. And one of them features the music of a really good friend of yours, Clint Mansell, who is a, an incredible composer that we've been lucky enough to have on the podcast and stuff. What is it about Clint's music that you love and, and, and him as well, about his work? Yeah, I mean, I was a kind of... Uh, I've been a friend of Clint's for a long time and I was a kind of big fan of Populate itself, a uh, very underrated band, I thought. And... Uh, I've worked with Clint as well, you know, and he's like, um, he's not frightened to use big emotions when it's important to advance the piece. He's not frightened to use a bit of restraint and let the piece talk for itself. He's one of these guys, he's not got any ego at all. He's just a really lovely kind of down-to-earth guy. And everything that he does is in service of the movie. You know, if he thinks that certain parts of the movie are dragging, he'll do something to, to push it on. Like the, the Requiem for a Dream score, he had that duru duru duru. If you think about that, that was quite a depressing and kind of slow-moving film, you know? And that that track just pushed the whole thing right on, like... When we were working together in Filth, it was the opposite. He kind of felt that McAvoy was doing this very high-energy performance. So Clinton wanted to keep it quite kind of muted and in the background. They're just adding little kind of um, little layers of emotional complexity to it, but without swamping it and, or, or trying to push it in that way. Is it important for you to be involved in your projects when, when they get taken that far? Working with John S. Baird, who directed Filth, which was brilliant. I loved it. Is it important for you to try and be involved to see your work right through to the end? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really... I think you've got to... It depends on the relationship you have with the, the filmmakers, and I've always had good relationships with them. And, uh, you know, the best ones are kind of natural collaborators, you know, like John and Danny Boyle and... Um, Paul McGuigan, you know, they want you to be involved in what, um, what what they're doing. I think, ultimately, you have to kind of see it as a very different thing. I always think you can't stand over somebody's shoulder, you know, because you know, it's like, when I'm writing the book, uh, I don't want somebody to stand over my shoulder and tell me what to do, you know, so you have to give other people the same respect, and you have to let people, ultimately, the excitement is, it's all about transformation, the excitement's in the transformation. Basically, I don't want a kind of photostat copy of what I've already done, you know, that'd be boring. So you're looking for people to bring something to it and you're looking for them to kind of, um, if they've got a really strong vision for it, you just stand back and let them go on with it. If they kind of think they want you to help them formulate that kind of vision of how it should be, then you get involved. But you, you've got to kind of um, gauge for what they want to do. 
When you're writing, do you, do you use music to help you with the characters? Yeah, very much. I mean, I make a playlist for every character and I make a playlist for every book. There's a thematic overview and then there's also what, you know, making a, devising a playlist for the character was kind of listening to at the time. It's quite in my, my office when I do the first draft. I've got the, um, I've got the standing up desk. So I'm typing at the standing up desk and I've got the Pioneer uh, mixer and CDJs next to me. So I'm kind of going from one to the other quite a lot. So it feels very kind of interactive. DJ and writing at the same time. Yeah, and I'm just kind of doing, putting some tracks down to get me in the mood and then going back into the, the text again and then go, you know, going back into the tracks. and getting, I think it's, it re, it's really helpful to me in the drawing up of, of characters. It's like, um, I like to have characters that are so kind of in your face and fully drawn that you can actually... You actually hear their breath in your, in your ear in the pub when they're berating you and all that. I, I like to get that kind of immediacy in them. And I think that music's one of the ways you do that. You know, you find, you, you think, what would this character be passionate about? And it's funny because you always think that, you, that you're really cool and you've got great musical tastes. And then you realise it's just a disease of association, basically. You're just lucky enough to have, like... Um, you know, a cool big sister or big cousin or, you know, who's got a great record collection, you know, and, and you kind of absorb a lot of that. When I wrote Filth, um, I thought, I can't, I can't just pick records I like for Bruce Robertson. I've got to pick records that I don't like, you know. I've got to, <laughs> the, the, so I picked, like, a, a lot of kind of kitschy and country and western stuff, which I never really got, and a lot of kind of sort of... Um, kind of heavy metal, kind of sort of white supremacist male heavy metal stuff, mm -hmm. which I never really sort of um, dug either. And, I, and cheesy power ballads. That's um, a mix. And, I, you know, that's what Bruce Robertson would listen to. And I, I, of course he is, he's a jambo. He's going to listen to shite, isn't he? Like, in, you know. in the so, middle um, of that playlist as well, it's got H-E-A-R-T-S, <laughs> right in the middle of it, yeah. just to yeah. keep him happy. So you get that kind of track and it's like, listen to all these songs. I actually started enjoying them, you know. I thought, fuck me. <laughs> These are actually pretty brilliant in a shite way, like, you know. So, um, so yeah, so, I mean, it is a, it's a disease of immersion, really. Did that start with train spotting? Were you doing that way back then as well? When, when yeah, you but train spotting, I was like, I was obsessed with acid house and raving and all that. And I wanted to kind of, um, I wanted to get the, the kind of energy um, that came from that scene, trying to, to try and capture it on the page, even though it wasn't particularly about kind of that house kind of thing, and I wanted to, I wanted to get a kind of four-four beat into the pages, make them turn on on a four-four beat, and that's why I went into using the Scottish vernacular because it's performative, you know, so it's a performative thing, so it's got that kind of, um, you know, like the the like rap comes from flighting, which is Highlanders kind of way of settling disputes, so they're kind of rapping things out anyway, and they're performing. And to try and get that kind of beat to it was really important. And also, you know, the, the other thing about, um, about house music was all the effects on top of it, you know. So the, the effects would be typographical things on the page that broke up that kind of beat. So I was trying to kind of consciously layer these things in that way, particularly in the, the early books. When you have characters that, you know, throughout your career you've written about at different stages and most re recently in Dead Men's Trousers, which is brilliant. It's such a great read. And you kind of miss those characters, and it's so great to see where they are now. Is it different playlists? So you almost kind of like, well, what's Begbie listening to now? What's Renton listening to now? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have Begbie listening to Slade and Mott the Hoople. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you had to move on, basically. Just in so private. I remember I was, I was, um, I was on the, 
this plane one time, and I was just going through all this different stuff, and I heard uh, Guns N' Roses' Chinese Democracy, which is actually just a, a kind of Axl Rose overproduced studio, uh, studio album, like, you know. And at first I was thinking, like, um, this is absolutely fucking terrible. And then I kept playing it and playing it. I thought, Begbie would love this, like, you know. <laughs> and, and why would he, why would he like it, you know? And I'm saying, well, it's like kind of, he wouldn't see it as overproduced, he would see it as using technology of the time, basically. So it's, you know, it's fundamentally about a kind of reinvention, and he was about a kind of reinvention of the self in a very sort of facile kind of way, but superficial way. So I thought this is a perfect thing he would be into. He wouldn't be into the original Guns N' Roses, but he would be into Chinese democracy, and he would be arguing very vociferously that it was the best thing he'd ever done. personality of this psychopathic bam and also this kind of kind of poncy artist who needs to relax I thought in his downtime he'd be sitting back on the couch with Mahler kind of um, Mahler's kind of light strings kind of massaging his temples and all that as he kind of tried to calm down and get his breathing regulated
with train spotting when it got you know taken onto the big screen and what Danny did that and with the second one as well music was such a massive part what was your reaction to the music that was used within the film we didn't have any money I think the whole thing was shot on you know probably less than a million pounds I mean it would cost you that to license all this stuff now I mean it's like the the train spotting too we had to go through that down that licensing route and it's like universal on most of the, the music rights so you kind of have to end up dealing with them. Uh, but we didn't have the money in the first one, so we basically called in favours with people that we knew. I used to kind of hang around uh, the Fortress Studios in Clerkenwell. My pal Steve Malloy had a cafe bar in there, and uh, that was the rehearsal rooms for all the Britpop bands, basically. So we kind of got to know all them, and um, Danny had worked with Underworld and uh, Left Field on uh, Shallow Grave. So basically calling in favours, getting the, the musicians to, um, to donate tracks that uh, we couldn't afford to license. We had a private screening for them and remember like uh, Carol and Rick from Underworld came there and we think, and we're trying to convince them that uh, it wasn't about people getting fucked up. It was a, a movie about the vitality of youth, which I think it, which I think it, which I think it is basically like, you know. And um, the, you know, the fucked upness is incidental to it. So they kind of, um, you know, it was like they had a whole different reaction to it when they saw the film. And everybody, you know, everybody did. And they, they all wanted to be involved, you know. And they all told their friends and their friends wanted to be involved and started sending demos in and started to see if they could get screenings. So it kind of kicked off in that way. And um, I think that um, Danny put it together really, really well because... Um, to have really good tracks is, is one thing, but to fit all these things together without a score, you know, it's just, it's basically just track after track after track. But I think it was an absolutely fantastic achievement. Like Lust for Life was obviously a big song before the film, but now whenever, well I don't know, I'm sure some of you might feel the same, but whenever I hear that song now, all I can see is that scene in the film. You know, they've become this marriage now as well, which is kind of power to the choice of that track, but also how good the film was. Yeah, it's such a strange thing because like, Iggy Pop's a neighbour of mine in Miami and he's become a good friend <laughs> over the years. That. You know, and I kind of completely idolised that guy and I've actually still got a poster of him on my wall. And uh, I think, I can't have him round to my house because he's going to see the fucking poster, like, you know. <laughs> and it's going to seem a bit sad and stocky and wanky now, like, you know. 
<laughs> goes, Irvine, I'm going to swing by yours. No, I'll come by yours, mate. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You got it. You've got a nicer part than me. But, um, so, yeah, so it's like... Uh, I won't. I can't take it down, but I, so, but I can't allow him in my house to take him down. Talk about Quadrophenia in that film. Yeah, uh, there's an interesting connection with Trainspotting there because Brian Tufano was a cinematographer on both, who's kind of one of the most fucking amazing guys you're ever going to meet. And Brian was kind of, um, he was getting on a bit with uh, when he was doing Trainspotting, but he would do all these incredible physical contortions to get the shot that he wanted, like, you know, um, incredibly athletic guy in a strange way, you know, and he just was a complete perfectionist. And um, the interesting thing about train spotting and the interesting thing about quadrophenia is that if you freeze every single still from, if you take every single still from that movie, it's like a poster. And quadrophenia is like that as well. Everything, every shot is so beautifully composed in these movies. There's a kind of continuity in a way of feel between quadrophenia and train spotting. And that's, that's to do with Brian. And the way that the music was used as well. I've gone with um, the track from the closing scene. You were under the impression That when you were walking forwards That you'd end up further onward But things ain't quite that simple You got altered you were told to not take chances You missed out on new dances Now you're losing all your dimples I think it's gonna be cut slim and thick Maybe a touch of serious sucker with it's that kind of brilliant statement about sort of about London at that time, basically. And um, I mean, I was, you know, I, I kind of used to to go down to London from a very early age because my auntie and uncle stayed down there. And my mum and dad, you're, you're noticing the Oliver theme recur recurring here. They were anxious to get me the fuck out the road for the school <laughs> holidays, basically. Send them down there. And uh, so I kind of got into London and being in London from quite an early age. And I moved down there when I was 16. And there was that kind of vibe about it then. It was just that kind of end of that whole Carnaby Streetish mm -hmm. type era, you know, that sort of um, the tail end of the kind of first kind of big kind of wave of mod that just percolated right through into the culture. 
Um, and it kind of, you know, it, it resurfaced in punk with Paul Weller and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And it just, it kind of captured that that whole sensibility of it. You know, I remember um, my big cousin Alec was a kind of total kind of sort of London mod. You know, he was 10 years older than me and I just kind of completely looked up to this guy. You know, he's like, um, he was like a kind of David Hemmings type character, you know. And he always used to come in with kind of like London dolly birds, basically. <laughs> and I would be sitting there like kind of sort of this 14-year-old covered in spots kind of thinking, fucking hell, you bastard. I want to be you, you know? <laughs> it's, you were in a band, though, when you came down to London, you know? You played bass and you sung in bands, other <laughs> bands. Is that not right? Yeah, I mean... Uh, I did mess around in bands for a bit, and um, like all bassists, I was a failed guitarist until I, beca I finally became a failed bassist. You know, it's like uh, one of the record shops in Inverness Street in Camden. You know, you have all these used to have all these adverts like "Drummer Wanted" and all that. I was just browsing around, and um, I used to spend all my time browsing in record shops, and uh, I saw this this kind of card there, you know, like kind of "Bassist Wanted," and I was kind of looking at that. And I, was, I saw the, I recognised the phone number. Oh. I recognised it as my mate Dave's fucking number, the guitarist in the band. No! And, got, and I, so I went round the phone box and I phoned them up and uh, I went, all right, mate, I saw the advert in the paper, what's going on then? Basis. He goes, yeah, yeah, the we've got is fucking useless. <laughs> he goes, you fucking wanker. So that was like, I was going to tell you, mate, I was going to tell you, it ain't working out. You know? So that, I realised that I was never going to kind of make it, basically, at that time. It was a kind of recurrent theme that um, I could never keep time with the drummer, and every time that I got, every time that a band got reasonably competent, you know, because in, the, in the, the punk era, nobody could play anything, but everybody else seemed to progress at a greater rate than me. And it was just some kind of lack of coordination going on, internal coordination going on, some kind of um, on-the-spectrum kind of behaviour on my part that didn't, I just didn't match up the dots as quick as everybody else, unfortunately. What about writing lyrics? That's really how the writing came about, you know, it was like, um, I realised that uh, I was writing a lot of ballads, basically, and, you know, ballads are just stories, you know, they're kind of set to song. I thought, well, obviously the song's not working out, so maybe just stick to the, the stories. <laughs> I'm going to play... Um this from a film, some of you will recognise it. He will rock you And he will roll you Baby, don't you know My heat will move your soul Come on, come on, come on, come on All day, all night, you feel my heat. Feel, 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 feel my heat. I think we should repeat that again. Feel, 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 feel my heat. Feel my heat. Yeah, it's definitely cool. Let's lay it down. Boogie Nights, uh, Mark Wahlberg and John C. Wiley in that clip. It's what a film. What Amazing a film. movie, yeah. 
I mean, the music in that is, <laughs> it's a, is just, I, I could have picked so many tracks. This is another one that I picked. What is it about the film and the music about that film that you really liked? You know what, the, the, I always think like kind of anything you do sort of um, kind of artistically, whether it's kind of um, a song, a book, a film, do it with fucking exuberance, mm -hmm. you know. It doesn't matter, you know, it's like because so many, you know, so many people are talented and they're technically good, but they're miserable fuckers. You don't want to spend any time in the company of miserable people. Uh, so anything you should do should have a should be powered by some kind of exuberance, even as the material is quite dark or you want to explore quite kind of darker issues. So, um, yeah, so have a bit of kind of exuberance and fun about it. And uh, that film is kind of, is very, very kind of bleak in a lot of ways. You know, like every film, like Trainspotting, you know, so all these kind of movies are all like kind of, whoa, this is an adventure, we're in a whole different place. And then it, the dream turns sour in the second part of it and we kind of, and we come to some kind of understanding of life at the end of it, like in some way, you know, that, they're, they're all that kind of um, sort of sh 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 roller coaster thing. But this is done with such fervor and it's done with such kind of excitement and such kind of um, such belief in unraveling that world. I mean, this is a, um, you know, the whole San Fernando Valley kind of pornography thing. It's a parallel universe to the whole Hollywood kind of system in LA. And there's, there isn't really that much crossover between the two, you know? Yeah, I mean, I got, I remember I was on, um, I got on the, the private films, kind of, who, who do the, the pornography, kind of, the big, the big porn guys in Europe, where they were at the time. They had a boat in Cannes, and everybody wanted to get onto the, the party, and uh, I managed to get onto the boat. And it was like, it was great, you know, because um, it was like, they had these Swedish bouncers, and they had this kind of, um, Somehow, this, this a, a kind of a kind of sort of pickpocket gang got onto the um, got onto the boat, and they they started running amok. I was downstairs, and I kind of missed all this. But uh, the porn stars were all having this big party downstairs, and um, Swedish bouncers are absolutely fucking useless, by the way. Um, and uh, <laughs> the Swedish bouncers got kind of turned over by the by the kind of the the band of thieves, and it was carnage upstairs. And um, one of the porn actors opened the door and he saw this. He just locked the door. Because we were just, we are going to just, German guy, we are going to just party here until it is all over. <laughs> <You know>? so, <laughs> so we did, it was great, like, you know. And um, one, of the, one of the guys had this um, private kind of uh, laminates with actor, with, with, with performer. performer. And I says, you've got to give me that, mate, because I, I want to walk down Leith Walk. With fucking private performer, <laughs> and he did as well. Like, you know, so I treasure it to this day. When you were talking earlier about you know stood up there typing in your CDJs to one side, what's forming the choice of songs that you're deciding to put on those playlists? I think you kind of there's an interface between the you know the the character and the theme, and also what you kind of. Um, and the kind of energy levels of that, you know, there's something like a character that you want 
kind of intuitively suggests a sort of certain playlist, you know, and you just kind of mess around with the songs until you kind of, um, and you, you know, you, you switch from one to the other, you switch from character back to playlist, and one informs, the, you know, one and one informs the other. Almost like a three, you know, the, they start to become three-dimensional then. If you go out with a bunch of people and you have a few drinks, <coughs> and there's a jukebox in the corner, you start, you, you get competitive over the jukebox after a while, like, and you see a lot of you know, if you if you have people back and you've got you know, you're, you're DJing and you're just people are putting tracks on, people get really fucking competitive and all that and that and you see there's almost a, a visceral edge that comes out and this is I'm imposing my fucking will on you, you know I'm imposing my taste on you, and that's when you see people in the raw and I'm trying to get to that you know you try to get down to maybe five or six essential tracks that are just going to really that they're going to fight and kill for to hear basically. One of the tracks that uh, I wanted to play was um, from a, a gentleman who crosses so many different... He's a writer, he's a director, he's a composer, um, John Carpenter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like... Um, I mean, I know it's, it's, it's kind of quite unfashionable to say, but um, I mean, I think John Carpenter is a genius and um, he, will be, he will be regarded, I think, in the same way as Alfred Hitchcock is now as a a master of suspense. And because Hitchcock comes from the golden era of Hollywood and it's like, oh, you know, it's like kind of, uh, it's seen as a much more naive and and sort of uh, simple place. And Carpenter comes from the the kind of bit where everything was sort of, um, it became mass entertainment and genreized, and it was kind of about pushing buttons and to, to get visceral reactions from the audience. It's seen as more cynical, but Carpenter is like a genuine auteur. You know, he, he just he, he takes he, he takes the whole movie and he, he puts his stamp on the whole thing. He's 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 done some incredible scores, and the way he does them, he's just sitting there with a little kind of keyboard, kind of sort of tapping away as as his film that he shot is playing. Assault in Precinct 13 is absolutely amazing. I mean, you, know, you kind of, you know, you, you go for the, I mean, the the big ones like Halloween, you know, the kind of when he's, you know, when he's really, he's building tension and he, he just does it so well, you know, he's like kind of, um, and I just love, you know, it's like, I love the way that he kind of just keeps making movies, like, you know, he's obviously, you know, he's, maybe his biggest creative years have passed him, but 
he just keeps knocking them out and he just he obviously just loves what he's doing what about for you as a filmmaker is is that something you want to take further you've made films yeah i mean it's like what i find is that um i like i kind of like doing short films and videos i've not got the patience to deal with actors in a in a, <laughs> in a kind of um in a long-term basis like you know eight weeks on a fucking set with a bunch of actors fuck that for a laugh like you know, because the thing about actors is they all come to you with the problems on set, you know, and it's like most of the time it's it's just because they're nervous because anything an actor does on film is there forever. So they're shit scared by the time they go, you know, they're shit scared they're going to make a tit of themselves or they're not going to look good or they're going to fuck things up. They do all sorts of things like they ask for more lines, you know, or they kind of, um, they start focusing on their part to the kind of detriment of how it fits into the, the film in a whole, as a whole, and they just need to be kind of reassured. And they always ask for fucking money as well, like, you know, they always ask for money and expenses and for this or that or different, you know. And, that, and it's like, um, it's not really what they're interested in. It's just a way of trying to get attention, you know. And I remember, like, uh, when I was I was directing, um, I think it was a film for TV, and I was quite um, edgy about it. And I, I said to Danny Boyle, I said, "You got any tips for me, Danny?" I've got, you know, he goes, uh, "He says just tell them anything, tell actors anything, you know, just to get them to shoot the scene. And then, <laughs> then after they've shot the scene, tell them I've done a great job, and they'll forget about everything they said before, you know. And it's true." <laughs> Fiction. Are you a big Tarantino fan? Not, not a kind of unequivocal or uncritical one, but mm -hmm. I mean, he, he he shot a lot of a real bit of verve and adrenaline into sort of Hollywood, basically. And he was, I've got a kind of personal reason to to like him as well because um, we're going to do this 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 screening of Train Spotting at uh, the Music Box Cinema in Chicago, and. Um, They've got this beautiful kind of 35mm projector system sorted out, you know, and nobody could find a 35mm kind of version of train spotting. You know, we thought we are going to have to send over to the UK, yeah. package it out there, and it would cost money and all that. And um, somebody said, well, Quentin Tarantino will have one because he just fucking, he collects everything to do with film, like, you know. And straight away, you know, got in touch with him and straight away, he sent his own personal 35mm copy of Trainspotting to the wow. um, to the music box, which I thought was lovely, like, you know. He just said, <coughs> this was a little post-it note on it, like, kind of, remember to post this back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we posted it back to him, but it was, it was great, and it was a nice gesture, but, you know, these, these the first few films kind of shot in this kind of real energy, and, um, you know, as a writer, you kind of admire long chunks of dialogue in films. They almost brought back that kind of stylish film noir 
dialogue where you have the kind of wise-cracking guys and the, and the, the trash-talking dames kind of sort of, you know, it, it harked back to that. It kind of um, integrated all that kind of stylization of the old Hollywood with a kind of very new and dark and kind of noirish sort of approach to it all. So, yeah, so it was, um, you know, these, these early films were fantastic. And um, the way this Pulp Fiction soundtrack is put together is absolutely amazing. The, the film has elevated songs that nobody else would kind of, you know, they would have been obscure, but they completely work in the context of that film. And because they're associated with the film, they're kind of elevated as well now in people's consciousness. So it, it, it's just, again, it's like... Um, it's sometimes um, it's you know it doesn't need to be the best tune. It just needs to be the best tune for that particular scene. I'm gonna play one now if that's all right. Now the moment you've all been waiting for, it's a world famous Jackrabbit Slim's twist contest. <laughs> now let's meet our first contestants here this evening. Young lady, what is your name? Mrs. Mia Wallace. And uh, how about your fella here? Vincent Vega. All right, let's see what you can do. Take it away. It was a teenage wedding, and the old folks wished them well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the Mademoiselle. And now the young Monsieur and Madame have rung the chapel bell. We look at these dialogue kind of lines there, like kind of me was, and then uh, there's a bigger. Tarantino's obviously given the direction to kitch this the fuck up, and not not a lot of directors would have the balls to do that, but it completely works in that context. Like. When you were a kid, though, going to the cinema, what were the films that you remember seeing? when you were growing up? Oh, the Bond films all the time. Really? Conway's Bond, we used to go to the state cinema and um, you just watch, they used to play the Bond films on a loop in cartoons, basically. Mm -hmm. So you'd go in there for the matinee and you would again, you would sit there all day, just watch them, kind of watch them twice even, like, you know. It just kind of, you know, it's like kind of, you, you never seen so many schemy kids in Leith totally fucking silent for, <laughs> for about three hours, like, you know. That was a kind of, um, my, my kind of cinema education and you kind of like um, it's just such a great thing for a kid that you a bunch of you go around there and you sit down you get your wee ice cream and you just sit and watch this these movies and you know it's like you're kind of completely lost in this yeah. world you're taking out your own place you know you're sitting there and you're you're kind of holy in natex jeans and there's kind of sean connery up there in a tuxedo and you're thinking that's going to be me one day <laughs> Thank you.
quite sad about Danny not doing the new Bond film because I thought that was going to be really, really exciting. And I'd really quite like to see you write a Bond film. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think that John Hodge, who, did, who was going to do the screenplay yeah. for Danny, and uh, d- they, I think they both wanted to push out a bit, maybe further than the, the franchise was ready to take. Yeah. I, think were, I think they were going to do a real kind of nut job treatment <laughs> on it. What's next? Do you make plans? I think if you get up in the morning, you're doing okay, like, you know. But uh, I'm not a great planner ahead, but um, just, you know, I've got loads of film and TV stuff. Um, projects that are kind of inching towards completion, then two steps back, then inching towards completion again, as these things always are. Irvin Welsh, everybody, thank you so much, sir, for your time. Thank you very much. Spotting that's a final hit by Left Field, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking Live with novelist, playwright, director, and top bloke Irvin Welsh. My huge thanks to Irvin for taking the time to talk to us and to Festival Number Six for having us. Sadly, though, it's the last one for a while, but that didn't stop us having an absolute ball. Head to irvinwelsh.net meanwhile to find out what the man is up to at the minute. And if you've enjoyed this chat, you may also very well be interested in Simon Mayo's Book of the Year podcast. Their latest episode features author Heather Morris, whose debut novel, at the age of 65, is the international bestseller The Tattooist of Auschwitz. In future episodes, Simon will be joined by Anthony Horowitz, Ian Rankin and Lee Child, amongst many others. So do subscribe to Simon Mayo's Book of the Year on iTunes and Spotify for your literary fix. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe to us too. Uh, rate us if you can on iTunes, if you get a second. And to find us on socials, we're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Soundtracking UK. And follow us on Spotify to get dedicated playlists for every show in which we list the tracks we play in the order they appear. Next up, two men who have appeared on the podcast previously, twice. In fact, Ben Wheatley was our first ever guest. For their third outing, they've done it together. 
Ben Wheatley and Clint Mansell next week, talking amongst many things about their new project together, Happy New Year, Colin Bursted. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Thank you.